So I think what this video communicates, at least to me, is that we are very small. Now, it's not just the <laughs> vastness of the universe that communicates this. It's the complexities of the details that communicate this as well, I think, that we are small. And yet, for some reason, the human heart strives for greatness. We strive to be great. We strive to be known. We strive to be important. There is a natural mentality to think that we are giants among men. And that we are, and, and this isn't only the human race as a whole, but really individual as well, that we are what is most important, that we are the very center of this vast universe, that we are what's most important, that we are at the very center of it all. Now, here's the thing. We don't have to teach this. It's natural. It's natural. In fact, we actually teach against this, at least in our household, we teach against this multiple times a day. We're trying to humble our children and teach them to be servants and teach them to be lovers of each other. But we have to teach against this attitude and mentality because it prevails. You see, we have this little beautiful girl named Sophia that resides within our household. Yes, she is our daughter. Yes, we claim that most days. She is our daughter. But for some reason, whenever she sees that her older brother Luke has a toy, and she, could have care, she couldn't have cared less about this toy a minute ago, right? But she sees that her, little, her older brother Luke has it, and she, all of a sudden she says, it's mine. It's mine, it's mine. I want it, I want it, I want it. It's mine, it's mine, it's mine. They kick and they scream and they fight, and they eventually they, they ended up screaming and crying because one of them got injured and one of them threw a fist, and the other goes on and on and on, right? It's mine, it's mine, it's mine. We fight against this mentality within our household every single day. It's mine, it's mine, it's mine. And think of why marriages fail. Because it's mine, it's mine, it's mine. Think of why there's crime on our city streets. Because it's mine, it's mine, it's mine. It's really all about me, me, me. I am what's most important. I am the center of my life. I am the center of the universe. Therefore, I will do what I do to promote and build up myself. But God told the prophet Micah that if you want to live the way that you were designed to live, if you want to be human, the way that I have created you and designed you to function, then there are three things that I desire you to do. I want you to act justly. I want you to look at the brokenness in the world and, and the problems and the pain in the world, and I want to, even at your own expense, I want you to enter into them in order to fix and to restore and to put back together. I want you to love mercy. I want you to befriend the sinner. I want you to forgive quickly. I want you to chase down that which is broken to embrace it. I don't want you to see this world and all of its problems. I want you to see the world and all of its opportunities. And I want you to walk humbly. My friends, it's not about you. It's not about you. It's not about you. It's not yours. And so think again of our nativity scenes. We're in this Christmas season. We all have these nativity scenes that we have displayed upon our house. It might be on your Christmas tree and an ornament or some display in your home. We have nativity scenes all over the place this time of year. And in this nativity scene, we know that God modeled all of this. All of Micah 6.8, God models right here. From day one, Jesus showed us exactly what it means to be human. He sees the brokenness. He resides among it. He befriends the sinners and he does it through his humble, self-sacrificial love. See, there's no pride in a stable. There's no pride in a stable. He was born into humanity. He was reliant upon a mother to grow uh, this child in her womb. Right? He was born in a stable. He was put into a feeding trough where animals were still feeding all around him. He was born into a peasant community. This, is, this wasn't even Rome. This wasn't even Jerusalem. This was little Bethlehem, a little peasant community that the God entered into. 
was born into. That is what our nativity scenes show, a great act of humility. These humble beginnings which led into every area of Jesus' life was completely countercultural to their day. No God in any of their stories had ever done something like this. It was completely countercultural to what they understood the gods to behave like, and yet the God enters into the world like this. You see, in the Greco-Roman world of the first century, there was one way of life that was admired above all other ways of life. This was the way of the hero, or the giants among men mentality. This is the way of the hero. Someone would overcome their obstacles in order to achieve excellence, and in that excellence they would receive status and honor and recognition. And that's why they did these things, so they could receive status and honor and recognition. You see, for the Greeks, for instance, the, the Olympic Games, this is exactly what they were. There was an opportunity to receive status and honor and recognition. They weren't just sporting events. They were religious ceremonies where the best among us would ascend the podium and they would be exalted and hailed as the best in the world. We still experience that today in our sporting events, our Olympic Games. This attitude led into every area of society. Pecking order was fundamental and ingrained into their civilization. An identity was determined by where you stood on the societal ladder. And if you were to digress down that later, it was devastating. It was detrimental to your very being. And so you wanted to climb as high on that ladder as you possibly could. The Greeks knew what greatness was, and it did not involve humility. Humility had no realm within the world of greatness to the Greeks. The philosopher Aristotle wrote that the great man, the great man, the, the man that all men should aspire to be was extremely proud. He despises honor offered by the common man. He indulges in conspicuous consumption. He likes to own beautiful and useless things because they prove his independence. He is not reliant upon anyone for anything, and he walks slowly and he speaks deliberately. So, let's not in our pride think that we've progressed all that much further beyond this, Okay. Let's not think that we're all that much better than what Aristotle had said we should all aspire to be. As a child, I had an entire closet full of trophies. And my friends, I wasn't that good at anything, all right? I wasn't that great to receive all of these accolades and trophies, and yet they were there. Man, I was full of pride because I had all these great trophies. I would shine them and buff them and look at them. Man, thinking that I was so great. I wore this watch on Sunday. You guys ever notice this watch? It's not a functional watch. Do you guys know that? I mean, it tells time, but I never look at it. This is my preaching watch. This is my statement piece, right? Why do we do things like this? Why do we just wear things because we want to make an impression, because, because we want to say something about ourselves? Emily was just telling me about this uh, um, conversation she was having with a coworker of hers, and this coworker was at a convention for their company, and the reason Emily was telling me this is because this was so out of the ordinary, but... Um, this coworker saw someone that was really high up in their company, uh, one, of the, one of the senior executives. And so, and so this person went to the senior executive wanting to, to, to share with her what an inspiration she has been. And the senior executive looks at this, this lowly human being and she says, yeah, I don't have time for you. She turns around and she starts conversing with someone she does have time for. Man, we snub people all the time who are common people. We're not all that much better than what Aristotle had said is the great, great man. We are also obsessed with status, I think. We have these things called status updates. How many of you guys updated your status this morning? And you said, your life is great. Man, my life is phenomenal. Look at me, Facebook world. My life is going great. Man, we try to exalt ourselves. We try to promote ourselves. We are the great man, the great woman. 
As I said, the Olympics, right? We still do this today. These people stand upon these podiums and we put gold medals around their necks and we say, this is the very best, literally the very best in the world at doing what this person does. And all of the world watches and they praise and they exalt this man or this woman as they rise to the podium. We're also obsessed with what we have. We as a nation already contributed to the $700 billion we're going to spend on Christmas this season. We've already contributed to it. Contributed to it. We too decorate our homes with useless yet beautiful things, right? We're guilty of it in our house. Uh, we have whole Christmas trees that are full of useless yet beautiful things. It's important to us, but we strive after being that same man that Aristotle talked about 2,500 years ago. Still prevalent in our society and in our day and in our households. It's ingrained into the very psyche that we need to try and to be somebody. And the reason this is the case is because the very nature of sin is self-reign. It's all about me. I am the center of my universe. It's all about the selfish heart. It's a heart that is bent in on itself. And so we have been hijacked to think that the great life and the meaningful life and the life of purpose and the life that's going to give us joy and everything that we are striving for is the life where we are at the center of it. It's the life where we are at the top of the social ladder and we are looking down on all other people. And everybody else then, in turn, is looking up at us and exalting us and praising us for all the great things that we accomplish. And so not only are individual lives set up this way, but entire societies are set up this way. In particular, the Roman Empire of the first century organized its citizens the, most, uh, the way that most airlines do today. They had the first-class citizens, and then they had the rest of the coach, right? I'm not a first-class cl- first airliner, uh, airline flyer, and so I've only ever sat in coach. But have you guys ever um, walked through, through uh, the first-class section on your way into your lowly coast section, and you're like, wow, wow, why are they eating off of real plates? How do, how do, they, get, how do they get actual silverware? Is that real glass they're drinking out of? Like, how, how did they, what? Why, why do they get to board for first? You know, why do they get to walk down that red carpet? Why do they have that special gate off to the side that they get to enter their plane? What, what's up with this first class coach distinction in our, in our airlines, right? But the Roman world set up their entire existence this way. And not only this, there was fundamental subdivisions within it all, right? Because airlines have the 100,000 mile flyers club. Maybe some of you guys uh, are, are within that, but then you also have the executive premieres. Then you got the, uh, pr- the, the platinum premieres, and then, and then the gold premieres, and the silver premieres, and then you got the, the, uh, the burlap premieres, and then you got the, <laughs> the no premieres at all, right? It's like you just keep working your way down these, these fundamental subdivisions. And the, r- the goal really is to climb up the ladder, to climb to the next division, to, to get to that next rung on that societal ladder. And in Rome, the highest status was reserved for the 600 or so senators who ran things under the Caesar. So Caesar is at the top, and then he had 600 men under him, his senators who ran things underneath him. Under them came the equestrians. These were the wealthy citizens. They owned horses, and they leased out their horses to the military. And then the decurions, who were the wealthy citizens who occupied the offices of uh, government officials and, and priestly class. They were like the aristocrats making laws and whatnot. These were the ones flying first class in their day. These were the 2% of people flying first class. They each had a series of honors within their status quo that they would vie for. And, and so they would, they would race for honors. And, if, and, and this race made up the very purpose for which they existed, to get up another rung on the ladder, to have a few more accolades, a few more titles after their name, a few more things that people could aspire to be like. That was their whole goal in life, to stand out above the rest. And then under these 2% of the Romans were the 98% of the population who flew coach. 
They were the overlooked nobodies for whom greatness was completely out of the question. These people had no opportunity to even to aspire to be great within their society. But they too had their own set of fundamental subdivisions and categorizations within their own realm of existence. Some of the nobodies were at least citizens of the Roman Empire, meaning that they had legal protection and rights. Others were freedmen who did not have these rights, but at least they had their liberty. And then at the very bottom of the pecking order were the slaves. They had no rights, they had no liberty. They lived at the mercy of the head of their household. You see, airlines use seats and the width of their seats and the gates they get to enter through and the type of carpet they walk on and the, and the dishes they get to eat off and the cups they get to drink out of. All the little perks, airlines use these to distinguish who, who is in first class and who is not. And in the Roman world, every single conceivable aspect of life was made to reflect this as well. And so clothes were literally a status symbol. If you were not a slave, you could wear a freedman's cap, so at least you could say, hey, I'm not at the bottom <laughs> of the rung. I'm not at the bottom of the ladder. I'm at least a little bit above the slaves. Male citizens, upon turning 14 years of age, when they entered into manhood, they wore the toga virilis. It was drafty in winter, sticky hot in the summer. It kept one's hand always concealed, and so it was completely unusable. It had no point other than to show the world that you had reached manhood. That's all the point of it was, to say, I'm now 14, I'm now a man, I'm no longer a boy, I now have a little bit of dignity, I now have a little bit of worth. A senator could wear a purple sash around his toga. Equestrians didn't have the opportunity to wear the purple sash around their toga, but they had fists full of gold rings and they had shorter togas so they could ride their horses and they would declare to the world that they were the equestrians, that they were part of the, uh, the, wealthy, the wealthy class. Occupations also were ordered around rank. The most honorable occupation they could have was to own land. And you'd be the one sitting down while all of the other people were working for you. So you try to aspire to that level of greatness. Legal conditions reflected status. There was one set of laws for the rich. There was another set of laws for the poor. Even their executions showed a status. Roman citizens were never executed by crucifixion. They, that was reserved for the lowliest of slaves within their society. Roman citizens could only be executed by either having your head chopped off or burning, being burnt alive. So I don't know if I, one of those are better than crucifixion, but um, they did not reserve crucifixion because of its shame for uh, for Roman citizens. It was only for slaves. Seating at public events reinforced this. So if you were to buy a seat at the theater, it wasn't uh, given by price. The, the best seats weren't the more expensive. The best seats were reserved for those higher up on the social, social ladder. The worst seats, the ones further from the stage, were reserved for those lower on the social ladder. At parties, guests would oftentimes invite um, friends and guests of inferior classes so just to, to promote how great they were, that they were closer to the head of the table where the guest of honor would sit. Because everyone was expected to claim their honor, learning to exalt yourself became second nature. Man, you're always tooting your own horn. You're always developing new ways to declare how great you were and everybody to look up at you. Plutarch, a first century biographer during the first century, wrote, a self-help book titled How to Praise Yourself Inoffensively. Caesar Augustus actually jumped on this bandwagon. He wrote his own biography titled The Achievements of the Divine Augustus. He inscribed it in bronze tablets and he copied it to be distributed throughout the whole empire. And so basically he wrote this lengthy biography about how great of a man he was and all of his accomplishments and that everybody should look up to him and, uh, and praise his name. And then he had it printed and copied and everybody in the Roman Empire was called to read it. 
This is the way of the hero. It exalted oneself. It put oneself upon the highest pedestal possible, and it said, look up at me while I look down upon you. But there were some wonderful qualities to it. It praised courage, for instance, and excellence and persistence and overcoming obstacles. It praised self-discipline. It praised self-mastery. So when Paul began his letter to the Romans, he didn't begin by describing himself as a Roman citizen, which he could have because he was. He didn't describe himself as someone wearing the tunic or someone at the head of the table. Rather, he described himself as a slave of Christ Jesus. I am a slave of Christ Jesus. He was committing social suicide. And nobody did this. Nobody, nobody uh, deliberately called themselves a slave. To throw yourself to the bottom of the social ladder, nobody did this. To boast in your slavery was unthinkable. To follow in the shadow of someone who was crucified was unimaginable. That's as low as you get on the social ladder. A slave and a crucifixion, that's as low as you get on the social ladder. It's like putting on your Facebook status, I am a loser. Everybody think of me as a loser. That's all that I am is a loser. So to have a group of people say, we serve a crucified slave named Jesus, we consider ourselves to be slaves to a slave, this was incomprehensible. Nobody did this in their day. This was something so extremely radical, stuff like this had never been uttered before, and even if it was, uh, even if it was um, thought of as a sign of honor in his day, nobody actually talked about it, nobody actually did it, nobody actually proclaimed it. Humility was not an admired quality. It was not something that people strove for, it was not something that people... Um, exalted to. It was not something that they wanted to be. Hum- humility was not an exalted quality or an admired quality. It was, considered, it was not considered desirable. No pagan author ever spoke of humility in positive terms or associations. They always referred to humility when they were talking about slaves or those who had been crucified or the abject or the worthless or the unworthy within their society. That's what humility is reserved for. That's who the humble are. But in the midst of all this, this world that strove to be great, this world that strove to put yourself at the top of the pedestal and to think so highly of yourself, in the midst of all of this, there was another way that was emerging. There was a poor rabbi who belonged to the freedman status. So he wasn't a slave. He was one up the ladder rung just above that of a slave. And he came along and he said, you know that the rulers of this world rule it over their people or lord it over their people and officials they flaunt their authority over those under them that's how the rulers and those in authority act they flaunt their authority you see nobody would have been offended by this observation nobody would have thought oh my goodness are you serious are you serious of course that's how the rulers of the world work of course that's how those in authority work of course that's the mentality and the attitude of those in authority Man, that's what we were striving for. That's exactly what we want them to promote. That's exactly how our society is structured. Get as high up on that ladder as you can. Stand up on that platform. Look, have everyone look up at you. Of course they're going to flaunt their authority, man. You rise to the top of the pecking order so you can peck. And that's why you do it. Of course you're going to flaunt your authority. But Jesus wasn't done. And what he said next, I think, would be offensive. He said, not so with you. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be your slave, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. This mentality, this attitude is what we might call the way of the saint. 
You see, a saint does not try to grab worth through the endless race of achievements, but receives worth simply by God's grace and simply by God's unconditional love for us. A saint does not choose as an ultimate value self-fulfillment, but rather self-giving love. A saint does not seek glory, but seeks to give glory. A saint does not impose his or her will, but it surrenders it to God. A saint does not resent serving others, but embraces serving, and it celebrates serving others. And here's the thing. Jesus didn't just talk about this as a good idea, as a theoretical idea. He actually lived it out. There were other religious figures who taught humility and the importance of serving one's neighbor in Jesus' day, but they didn't live it out. They stayed upon their thrones, and they stayed upon their high seats, and they stayed upon their podiums, and they never got down to bend low to serve other people. They talked about its importance. They talked about it as a nice theoretical idea, but they never actually did anything about it. But on Jesus' last night, he got up from the meal, he took off his auto clothing, and he wrapped a towel around his waist, and after that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with a towel that was wrapped around him. This is an alternative view of greatness. This is an alternative view of greatness from what the Romans understood, from possibly what we understood greatness to be. Jesus, the Lord and teacher, took on the uniform of a slave. The Lord and teacher taking on the uniform of a slave. This is an alternative view of greatness. Washing feet was actually a very important part of their civil life back in the day. It was an act of hospitality and hygiene. It was also a religious ritual of cleansing, but it was also incredibly demeaning. It was actually one of the most demeaning acts that you could do, and so it was only reserved for the lowliest of slaves. If there was uh, subcategories within slavery, it was only reserved for the very bottom-feeding slaves. Nobody wanted to wash feet, especially during the Passover when there were so many people in Jerusalem, especially when the conditions were as gross as they were during the Passover in Jerusalem. Nobody wanted to be the foot washer. And yet it was Jesus, our Lord and our teacher, who gets up, and he is the one who washes the disciples' feet. And so as the disciples are finally having their feet washed and they sit down to eat this meal, Jesus asks them an interesting question. He says, who is greater? The one who is at the table or the one who serves? Well, the answer is obvious. It's the great ones, right? The humble ones serve. The great ones sit. The great ones die, and the great ones receive the service from the humble ones. And we still see this. We give special titles to special guests, right? We go to wedding banquets, and we go to parties, and we have guests of honor, and we all look to them, and we all celebrate them, and we think they are the great ones here. Greatness is reserved for them, but is it the one who sits at the table or is it the one who serves, which Jesus is saying, great. He continues, who is greater? Is it not the one who is at the table? Of course, it is the one who is at the table, but I am among you as one who serves. I have taken up the towel. I am the busboy. I am bussing your dishes. I am one among you as one who serves. So, whoa, whoa, whoa. Jesus, are you, are you telling us that the great life is not to ascend to the podium. It's not to stand and have everyone looking up at us. Are you saying that the great life that God has created us for and intended us for is not the one where we are at the center and receiving all the praise and exaltations? Are you actually saying that the great life is when we are at the bottom and we are lifting other people up and we are serving other people up? And Jesus says, of course, yes. Of course, yes. I, your Lord and teacher, I'm going to model for you what humanity looks like. And so I am among you as one who serves. I am redefining what greatness looks like. 
And it's not the guest of honor. It is the busboy. I'm redefining what greatness looked like. I was born into a manger, after all. I was born into a peasant community. I was born into the most humble of all conditions. And upon the end of my life, as I had lived it only in service and sacrificial love for others, I would take upon myself a servant's towel and I would bend low to wash my disciples' feet. And then I would take upon a slave's cross and I would die the most humiliating, shameful of all deaths. And why? Why would I do this? Because it's not only modeling what humanity was supposed to look like in service and in humility for others, but it is also freeing you to live that way, giving you the strength and the power that you need to look that way. So Jesus took his responsibility as a teacher and as a commander, and he used his authority to come underneath people, to lift them up. He did not stand above people, weighing them down by the burden of his authority. He lifted them up to live a life that he had created them to live. And what was notable about Jesus, what was notable about Jesus is that he chose this. And you have to know how notable this is, that he did not have to do this, but he does it out of his own free will and his own strength. He says, I am going to choose to do this. I'm going to choose to do this. Well, maybe one of the very earliest writings about Jesus a very ancient hymn that had begun uh, to spread throughout the Mediterranean world said that Jesus, being in very nature God, he made himself nothing. He made himself nothing. He made a choice to become nothing, and he took on the nature of a slave. Yes, he was God. He was the Lord. He was the teacher. He was the God Almighty, and yet he made himself nothing, and he took on the nature of a slave. You know, there are plenty of instances in the ancient world where people were humbled because they lost a sporting event, or, or they had their riches stolen from them, or, or any number of tragedy befell them. There are a lot of instances where people were humbled, but there was no other instance where some deity or God chose to humble himself for the sake of his people. Nobody in the ancient world ever had made that choice until Jesus came along. Jesus, our Lord and teacher, within a few hours would be arrested. He would be tried and he would be convicted and he would be nailed to a cross. He would endure death of a slave and this would be his final status in the empire of Rome, a slave. Because he died upon a slave's cross. And this is how he would be understood in the Roman world. And this was his choice, the Lord and the teacher turned slave of the world, turned slave of humanity. This was his choice. See, after Jesus rose from the dead, and here's where it gets fascinating for you and for me, and this is how Jesus began to change the world. When Jesus rose from the dead, these little communities began to form in his name. Little Jesus communities began to take shape all over the Mediterranean world, and they began to reflect on Jesus' teachings, and they began to live out his mission. And Rome didn't know what to do with these. They had no idea what to do with these little communities because they were, they were so countercultural to the way that they understood the world to work. They did not understand and they subverted everything that was admirable and necessary for, for a functioning society. Rome had no idea what to do with these little Jesus communities. These communities taught that there was neither Jew nor Gentile nor slave nor free. There was neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And so it's not that these categories all of a sudden just evaporated and disappeared, but But what they were saying was that we are not going to let these categories dictate how we treat each other. We're not going to let those who are citizens treat slaves poorly. We're not going to let the men abuse the women. We're not going to let these categories dictate how we treat each other. These categories are irrelevant. And so educated people and wealthy people, they would come and they would sit alongside slaves and little petty artisans at these Jesus communities. In their day, society was arranged vertically, and the whole point was to get up as high as you can on the ladder, but at the very bottom of the ladder, at the very bottom rung, 
there was a great leveling taking place. There was a great leveling taking place where people at the top of the ladder would bend down low, choose to do this voluntarily, bend down low to wash the feet of those underneath them. And Rome had no idea what to do with this, and so they tried to blot it out and get rid of it. I mean, consider the life of Paul for a minute. He says in Philippians 3, he says, Whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. His gains were that he was a Roman citizen. He was probably uh, very wealthy as a Pharisee. He was a teacher of the law. He had a lot of accolades. A lot of people looked up to him. He was pretty high upon his societal ladder. He wasn't at the top by any stretch of the imagination, but he was pretty high up there. And all of these gains, he said, whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. And what is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus as my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage. That's, I may gain Christ and be found in him. All of that stuff, all of that status, all of this, the striving to be at the top and the podium and the exaltation and the glory from man, all of that I consider as garbage that I might be known by Jesus Christ. See, he refused to let citizen in Rome, citizenship in Rome as something to be used to his advantage. Rather, he made himself like a non-citizen. He made himself like a slave and he served his communities. And see, Paul looked deep down into the nature of sin deep in his heart. And he saw that it was promoting himself, and there was a lot of self-exaltation, and a lot of self-reign, a lot of pride going on, and, and his attitude and mentalities were all about the selfish pursuit. And he allowed the life of Jesus to put that mentality and that attitude to death. And so when I became a Christian, uh, as uh, a counselor had come to me at a, at a Christian camp up in northern Minnesota. A Christian counselor had come to me and he said, hey, do you want to go to heaven when you die? And I said, yeah. Uh, he said, okay, well, do you believe that Jesus Christ died for your sins? Uh, and I said, yeah. And he said, okay, you're saved. And I said, all right, sweet. That's, that's, that seems like a pretty good payoff right there. And so I walked away as a middle schooler from this experience and I, and I stepped into my $90 Jerbo jeans. You guys remember those, man? Those were, the, those were the hot items back in the day. And I put on my $120 Air Jordans and I, uh, and I taunted all the other kids on the basketball court as I hit that three-pointer. And I taunted other kids as I, as I hit the home run. And I won the game for my team. And then I would, uh, I would show up at the lunchroom and I'd say, I'm not sitting with those people over there. I'm above those people. And so I'm going to go to the cool kids' table and I'm going to go sit over there. And then I would talk about all those kids, you know, all the kids who sat at those tables and we'd just make fun of them all day. And then I would, uh, I, would, I would cheat on my math homework and I would try to get ahead of that way and try to be, become the, be the best uh, student in my, in, my, in my class by getting ahead through means that were lacking integrity. And why, the question became a couple years later, why didn't my confession of Christ and, and my accepting him as my Lord and Savior, why didn't it change me like it changed Paul? Why didn't it create any humility in me? Why didn't it do the, the dying work in me of putting that mentality and that attitude that's all about me and I'm going to do what I can to get ahead and I'm not going to, uh, I'm going to climb that social ladder and that ladder as high as I can and stand upon that podium. Why didn't it do its work in me like it did in Paul? Why didn't I experience that dying of it? And I had to wrestle with that for a long time. See, the, the Christianity that I adopted didn't demand any humility. I just continued to live in my fancy jeans and my fancy shoes and live with my fancy people and talk about all the people below me. I didn't change my behavior or the way I thought about the world. It merely, I merely fit Jesus into my already existing worldview and my already existing structure. Nothing had changed about me. 
And so I wonder what we lose. I wonder what kind of life we are missing out on when we refuse to let this sinful, selfish, self-reigning, self-exalting, striving for the top of the ladder life die. I wonder what kind of life we're missing out on. I really do. See, Paul was introduced to Jesus, and all of a sudden he considered all the accolades and all the striving and all the searching for the status and all of that, he considered it garbage. It's all worthless compared to knowing Christ, to being in an intimate relationship with him. All that stuff became trash. And so here's the thing. Jesus lived as a slave. Jesus, our Lord and our Savior, God Almighty, gave up all of that. And he came down as a slave to humanity, born into a manger, taking up a servant's role within his life. And then he died upon a slave's cross. And for his followers, this meant that either he was not a great man, because this was not what they understood greatness to be, either he was not a great man, or they had to redefine their whole notion of greatness. That their whole notion of greatness would now have to become cruciform. It had to be defined by the cross. And so here's our honesty time. Are our lives cruciform? Do a little inventory of your own life. This morning, perhaps, were you a servant to your spouse or to your children or the person that you rode with here today? As you walked into this place, were you a servant to the people sitting next to you? Did you think kind words of them and, and wish and pray and hope for their betterment? On the spectrum of pride and humility, where do I tend to fall? In any given day, where is my life lived on that spectrum? Does my life take the shape of the cross? Does my life look like Jesus hanging upon a cross, the, the slave, willing to be shamed, knowing that I am doing a good work in this world through my pursuit of acting justly and loving mercy and walking humbly? Do I display the attitudes of the cross? Am I quick to serve? Am I, am I quick to die to my own wants so that another might receive their wants? You see, there is a life promoted in this world that is nothing like that. The world that we live in will say, it's all about you, it's all about you. Do whatever you, you can to climb that ladder. Do whatever you can to promote yourself. Do whatever you can to stand upon that podium. Take as much pride as you possibly can for all of your achievements and all of your accolades. It's all about you after all. It's all about you. It's all about you. It's all about you. It should be yours. It should be yours. It should be yours. Take, 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 take. But Jesus comes along and he says, that is not the great life. If you want the life that I've created you to live and designed you to live, then take up a new form of greatness. Take up the greatness that, that comes with being a servant. Choose daily to die to yourself and humble yourself. Take up that towel, begin to serve. And even when you believe that you ought to be being served, man, pray against that and take up the towel and begin to serve all the more. Choose this day to consider yourself a slave. Choose this day to carry your cross. Choose this day to humble yourself. Choose this day to lift somebody else up and you will experience the life that God says is great. Father in heaven, we do ask by your strength and by your spirit that you would do this in us. You've given us not just a model, but a power, Father. Not just a model in Jesus Christ, that he lived his whole life in great humility. But you've also given us a power through your spirit. And so I pray, Father, when, when we feel tempted to choose ourselves, to put ourselves upon the podium and to think of ourselves great, that we would be knocked down a little bit and we would say, it's not about me, it's not about me, Father. Create in me an attitude and a desire to serve others, to walk underneath other people and lift them up. And in this, Father, I do believe that we will experience peace in our hearts and in our individual households and in our community, Father, if we become servants of one another, 
we will experience your peace, Father, for this is how you've designed us. This is how you've created us to function in service and in love, giving of ourselves so that another's life might be better. Do it in us, Father, we do ask, not only in us as individuals, but us as a church, Father, we do ask that you would do this in us and that we'd have the willingness, Father, and the desire to carry it forth. We do pray these things in your name. Amen. Hey guys, if you want to continue this conversation, I would encourage you to pick up a review and a discussion guide on your way out. If you're uh, driving home, talk through some of those questions as you're sitting at lunch today or all throughout this week. Continue the conversation on what it means to be humble and to be a servant in your household and in your life. God bless you all. Go in peace.